This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Bears, the True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the first episode of season 10. Can you believe it? Season 10? When I first started I was like, I'll stop after the 10th season or after 100 episodes. I'm way past 100 and to be honest I've got that many case suggestions. Stopping after season 10, it's just not on the cards. Before we get into this first episode of this brand new season, let's break the ice as we always do. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. True facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know cows have best friends? They form such strong bonds with other cows that if they become separated, they can experience stress and anxiety. Now, I'm not quite sure how one would go about testing a cow for stress and anxiety but let's not get bogged down with the detail let's just enjoy the fact now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment final quote of the day success is not final failure is not fatal it is the courage to continue that counts that was said by winston churchill now this case was suggested by rebecca mogg via the contact form on britishmurders.com we're in the Bath and Northeast Somerset village of Paulton this week. Here are five quickfire facts about Paulton. Number one, Paulton was once home to several collieries, with the last one, Parkfield Colliery, closing in 1960. The mining history of Paulton is an important part of its identity. Number two, Paulton boasts several notable historic landmarks, such as the Church of the Holy Trinity. That's a grade 2 listed 13th century parish church. Number three, there are two war memorials in the village, one of which commemorates the location where 23 men were killed on September 17th, 1944, when the glider they were flying crashed. Number four, there's an annual music festival in Paulton called The Big Gig. This year's event takes place this Saturday, July 8th, assuming you're listening to this on the day it was released. And number five, the only other fact I can offer is that the village has its own football team, Paulton Rovers FC, who currently play in the Southern League Division 1 South, which is at level 8 in the English Football League Pyramid. Finally, the estimated population of Paulton is 5,303. Today, I'm going to tell you a story that has lingered in the periphery of British media, rarely finding its way into the headlines or archives of popular crime stories. If you type the name David Heal, that's H-E-A-L, into a search engine, you'll be hard-pressed to find more than a handful of articles detailing his life and tragic death. Even so, I firmly believe that the voices of innocent victims who have met tragic ends should never be silenced or forgotten, regardless of how scarce the information is regarding their story. I'm going to do my utmost, even with the limited amount of resources available, to go through David's life, something which was unjustly taken away from him by someone he knew, someone he trusted. And without question, 
one of the few people he would have deemed the least likely to do him harm. Let's start from the beginning. David Edward Heal was born on August 6, 1939 in Radstock, Somerset to his parents Albert Edwin Bertie Heal and Muriel Alice Heal. A colliery salesman, Albert married Muriel Taverner in the Somerset village of High Littleton on October 6, 1934. Muriel was a stay-at-home mum responsible for looking after and practically raising the kids whilst Albert was away working. Whilst researching David's family history, I was unable to work out whether or not he had any siblings, but what I do know is that he would go on to become a father to three sons called Edward, Richard and Kenneth. Edward, the eldest, took his dad's middle name, in a tradition not too far removed from taking your dad's first name but adding the suffix junior at the end. Nothing was more confusing than that when I used to work in collections for a bank. The boy's mum was born Brenda Jean Carlson, the daughter of Johann Hartloff Carlson, a sailor, and his wife Eva, a stay-at-home mum. You can probably tell, given the surname Carlson, that her family hailed from Scandinavia. Johann's mum and dad, Brenda's paternal grandparents, were Norwegian. Taking on the surname Heel after marrying David, they welcomed the three boys into the world and remained together for a while, but before long their marriage began to break down. I can't comment on why that was, and I'm certainly not going to speculate, but they finally separated around July 2002, leaving David completely lost and, understandably, not knowing what to do with himself. The end of his marriage to Brenda likely marked a profound turning point in his life, one that brought with it a unique set of challenges and emotions. One of his mates recalled how he went off the rails a bit after the split, for example. It's something he'll have dreaded. Not only was his relationship over, but he still had to somehow navigate his role as a father to their three sons. Essentially going from a full-time to a part-time parent must be a horrendous and confusing feeling. After a little bit of a wobble in the immediate aftermath of his divorce, David decided to get back on the horse, as it were, and turn his life around. He had been in the British Army after all. Discipline and organisation were his bread and butter. In an attempt to further research David's time spent in the army, I trawled through several databases, but I came up short each time. The only profile I could find for a Mr. David Heal in the British Army said he'd served from 1982 until 2004. Regarding 2004, that fits David's profile as that was the year in which his life was taken away from him, but to join the army in 1982 at the age of 42-43 doesn't quite add up. I know that David earned a living as an electrician for a significant portion of his life, and after moving to the village of Paulton in October 2003, he became a parish councillor for Paulton Parish Council. Given what I do know about him, I'm going to say that the army profile I found relates to someone else with the same name. As always, I explored the area in which David lived using Google Maps. He lived in a semi-detached bungalow on Oaklands in the village of Paulton, not too far away from Ubley Warren, a beautiful-looking nature reserve in a former mining area which was in use from pre-Roman times to the end of the 1800s. Living with David in the bungalow was his pet dog, the name and breed of whom are two things that escaped me, sadly. It seemed as if David was more than happy to live a quiet life as he approached his golden years, but that didn't stop him from entering relationships with women. Described as a lovely man by those who knew him, 
David was spending New Year's Eve in 2003 at his house with his then-girlfriend Lorraine Harvey, a woman in her early 50s who was 10 years his junior. Joining them during the celebrations was Lorraine's son, Matthew, who lived with them at the property in Polton. Matthew Sidney Roberts was born in the mid-70s. His exact birth year was 1976, I believe, making him 27 on New Year's Eve 2003. Matthew endured a deeply troubled and fractured childhood that left him with lasting emotional scars and trauma. Raised in an unstable and tumultuous environment, his mental health suffered irrevocably, to the extent that he became an abuser of heroin and alcohol. Essentially living wherever his mum lived, Matthew was considered to have no fixed address, and he was left with a difficult decision to make when David and Lorraine's relationship suddenly ended in early 2004. When I say early 2004, I literally mean a few days into the new year. The celebrations on New Year's Eve were clearly short-lived. Opting to remain living with David, with his permission of course, Matthew found himself in a bizarre situation that not many of us could perhaps handle. Little else is known about Matthew's upbringing, but I didn't find any mention of him having a father in the picture, whether that be because he chose not to be in his son's life or he was no longer around. The closest thing Matthew had to a dad at that moment was David, and perhaps he felt like he didn't want to throw that opportunity away. As I discuss what happened to David, it's worth remembering his generosity and kind-heartedness in taking Matthew in, a man who was not his son, even after separating from his mother, the only person who connected the two. It couldn't have been an easy situation for either of them to have been in. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Making the most of their situation, the two men went out for a drink on Sunday, January 4th, and seemed, according to some of the locals, to be enjoying each other's company. Any tension was likely eased by the consumption of alcohol, but as we all know, our tongues can also become loose once the drink hits our lips. After a pleasant evening at the pub, David and Matthew headed back to the bungalow and settled down in the living room. It's likely that further drinks were consumed, as is the common fashion after an evening out. It could have been nothing more than a brew, though, to be fair. Regardless, David and Matthew continued chatting away until the homeowner said something that his new lodger took exception to. The only person who knows what David said that night is Matthew, but I'm led to believe that it was something to do with his mum and it wasn't a positive remark. Matthew's pent-up aggression at his living situation was further fueled by the alcohol he drank that night and it led to him attacking the 64-year-old that had graciously taken him in when he really didn't have to. Losing his self-control, Matthew punched David in the face a total of three times, with each strike being dished out with more force than the one before. His intention, so said the murder trial judge, was not to kill David but to seriously harm him. Whether that's true or not is something I'll leave for you to decide. Once incapacitated, Matthew walked away from the scene to calm down and gather his bearings. Upon returning, he came to the sudden realisation that his assault had been much more violent than he had intended. He now had David's motionless body laying in the living room and had zero idea what to do next. The logical thing, of course, would have been to call the police and explain what had happened, but it's easy to say that with hindsight. Matthew's reaction was to cover up what he'd done and hope that he got away with it for a brief period. Choosing to remove David's body from the living room and place it inside his freezer, 
Matthew's inevitable capture could surely only be put off for a matter of hours, days at best. In one final act of degradation, Matthew stole David's credit cards before fleeing 170 miles north of Manchester and spending over 1,300 quid on them. Upon discovering what he'd spent the money on, I could do nothing but shake my head. Matthew chose to purchase some new clothes, three mobile phones and some video games. He had made his way up north due to having some links in the Salford area of the city, but to what extent I can't say. He likely had some mates there who took him in whenever he was in the area. He had similar connections in Bristol, a neighbouring city of Bath, but he likely wanted to get much further afield in the hope of putting a good distance between him and David's body when it got discovered. A full week passed before the police were made aware of David being missing. As I mentioned earlier, he liked to live a quiet life, so it makes sense that he wasn't immediately thought to have gone missing by those closest to him. David's relatives finally raised the alarm on January 11th after he failed to return a series of phone calls from them, which was out of character for him. Arriving at the bungalow, the police's knocks went unanswered. Making themselves known, they forced their way inside and briefly searched the house. The search must have been a surface-level one because they found nothing. They likely just had a quick look around before leaving the scene. Two days later, there was still no sign of David and the police were once more informed. Opting to conduct a more thorough search this time, the officers that arrived at the bungalow didn't spend long looking around before discovering David's body in the freezer. Based on his injuries, which were clearly visible despite him being frozen, David's death was initially treated as suspicious, with Inspector Nigel Tinsley-Such of Avon and Somerset Police saying, It is clearly a suspicious death, and we are making inquiries about it. The body is frozen and this will cause us some difficulties over the next few days before we can establish what happened to him. David's body was transported 16 miles north of his home to Bristol's Southmead Hospital, but due to being left in a freezer for nine days, it was impossible for an immediate post-mortem to take place. The day after his body was discovered, it was reported that a 53-year-old woman was arrested in connection with his death. Given what we know about his personal life and the age of Lorraine Harvey, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that she was the arrested woman. During those initial interviews, Lorraine and David's relationship was questioned, as was their recent breakup. When pushed further, Lorraine likely informed the officers that her 27-year-old son Matthew had continued living with David after the split, which gave them a new lead and a new suspect to bring in for questioning. Officers appealed to the public on January 16th to help trace Matthew, explaining that they knew he had links with Bristol and Manchester. As far as they were concerned, this was not yet a murder investigation, but they wanted Matthew to be brought in nonetheless. A spokesperson for Avon and Somerset Police said, Mr Roberts has several distinguishing features, including an inch-long scar on his neck, a second scar on the right side of his face, and another near his right eyebrow. Later that day, Matthew's whereabouts were handed to the police and he was swiftly arrested whilst out and about in Hannam, a suburb of Bristol. Lorraine remained in custody after police officers were granted an application by magistrates to extend their questioning time with her. Even so, she was released on bail the next day. By January 18th, David's body had thawed enough to allow his fingerprints to be taken, which confirmed what the officers already knew, his identity. A preliminary post-mortem was conducted the following day with the results confirming that David's death came at the hands of another, 
he was murdered. Announcing that they were not looking for anyone else in connection with David's death, officers officially charged Matthew Roberts with his murder and he was remanded in police custody. Matthew's first major court appearance occurred on April 30th, 2004 at Bristol Crown Court where he was asked how he pleaded regarding David Heal's murder. Not guilty was his response. Whilst in custody, Matthew, showing absolutely zero remorse for what he'd done, was seen wearing a t-shirt on multiple occasions which had the words I freeze old people written on the front. Eventually, on June 2nd, 2005, Matthew changed his plea to guilty after admitting to having killed David, even though he claimed not to have meant to. Judge Tom Crowther, who oversaw the proceedings at Bristol Crown Court, handed Matthew a sentence of 12 years and 7 months for murdering David Heal. He said as he passed that sentence, I accept that you had no intention to kill. It was an aggravating feature to treat the body in the way you did. It showed anything but respect. Matthew's sentence has long since expired, so he's more than likely a free man now. As for David, he's buried at Holy Trinity Church in the village of Polton. And that was the story of David Heal and British murderer Matthew Roberts. Thank again, Rebecca Mogg, for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on it. If you're listening on Spotify, there is a section at the bottom. You can let me know what you thought about the case. I've got six new reviews to read out this week. Mana left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. Titled regarding the episode about Alison Bota, it reads, I'm from Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Thought I might help with the pronunciation of some of the names. Theans is pronounced Teens and Botha is pronounced Bota. They are both Afrikaans names. We don't normally pronounce the H and we have hard T's. Some of the other names were pronounced funny as well, but that's just because you aren't Afrikaans. I love your podcast. I really appreciate you reaching out and letting me know how to properly pronounce those names, Mana. I've let Lorraine know as well. I love feedback like that. Thank you. Jake Stewart left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Addicted to This Podcast. It reads, I recently found this podcast around a month ago. I binge listen every day whilst I'm at work cleaning windows. I'm on season eight as it is from episode one. How adorable is your daughter? True facts that sound like bullshit cracks me up. One day you'll be doing the intro to her podcast. You're a legend, Mr. Blues. Your podcast makes me laugh and keeps me gripped. I'd love you to cover the murderer Carl Bishop who killed Rob Knox in Sidcup, Kent. Carry on with your amazing podcast. Cheerio. I've added that case to my spreadsheet for you, Jake. Thank you. Megan Furness left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Long-Time Listener, First-Time Reviewer. It reads, Superbly wrote and presented podcast. I've listened since British Murders' debut and feel so invested and hopeful in Stuart's success. Keep up the great work. Phil Sterland Rob left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Fantastic Podcast. It reads, Living in Gran Canaria and only discovered British Murders on Spotify a few months ago and I've binge listened up to the end of Series 8 already. I love the compact nature of the episodes as well as the humorous comments like Did it stop him killing? Did it bollocks? You don't get that on the BBC. Love your Yorkshire accent. I'm from Warwickshire so don't really have an accent myself, in my opinion anyway. Brilliant series. I've already recommended a case via Messenger which you've said has been added to your spreadsheet. Hopefully I'll get to hear that soon shall continue through series 9 but in the meantime cheerio justice fighter left a five star review on apple podcast australia titled greetings from down under it reads 
Hi there, Stu. Only came across your podcast four months ago. Love them so far. Love the way you structured the story. Easy to follow. Short, but concise. Keep up the good work. Bo from Melbourne. And finally, Moose Rock left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts titled Moose. It reads, You've got a great podcast, and who knew, to my delight, that you'd ever bring up Moose. I have an absurd fascination of Moose. I honestly don't know why. So, in addition to listening to your intriguing tales of UK true crime, I enjoyed a sort of personal shout-out. Thanks, Stu. Lisa Druge. That's in relation to my random fact about Moose from Season 9, Episode 9. Thank you, Marna, Jake, Megan, Philbo and Lisa for leaving the show such lovely reviews. Suppose you'd like to leave a review and have it read on a future episode. You can do that on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you want to support the show on Patreon or donate via Buy Me A Coffee, the links for those are on BritishMurders.com. Thanks Katie Richardson and Jen for buying me a beer each. The messages left were... Brilliant podcast. I listen every day while I'm at work, and the respect you show the victims is admirable. Good work, Stu. I'm a Yorkshire lass too. That was from Katie. Jen said, Thank you. A refreshing, human, and respectful take on the dark side of humanity. Thank you, hello, and welcome to my latest Patreon members, Hayley Schofield, Natasha Keddy, and Michelle. I'm going to say this wrong. Michelle de Oud? I hope I'm saying that right. Please continue emailing case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me on social media. You will get a shout out when the episode gets covered. And that wraps it up for the first episode of season 10. Pretty short story this time, but it's still one that's worth telling. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.